Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. For those of you who are new to the channel, I'm Jared Halverson. I'm a teacher of the gospel. More importantly, I'm a student of the scriptures. And most importantly, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful that you've joined me. I started this channel a couple of months ago in hopes of staying connected with my students during the whole COVID-19 pandemic. So far, I think it's been a blessing to them. Some have said it's been nice to be able to pause me so that they can think and ponder about the things that we're discussing. I'm sure others are grateful that they can fast forward me or skip it all together. But I've also been amazed at this growing community of unshaken saints. I'm meeting people all over the world, and I'm grateful to be able to connect with each of you. I wish I could get to know each of you personally, but so that you can know me a little bit, my name's Jared Halverson, like I said. I grew up in Southern California. Served a mission in Puerto Rico, taught at the MTC, studied history at BYU, and then got a master's in religious education after beginning to teach for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I eventually ended up in Nashville, Tennessee, running the Seminary and Institute program there, and dove into a graduate program at the Vanderbilt University Divinity School so I could study American religious history, focusing on anti-religious rhetoric. So academically, I spend most of my time studying anti-Mormonism, anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism. I'm currently finishing my dissertation on anti-biblical rhetoric in 19th century America, and I'm up to my eyeballs in the things that people have said to try to rob biblical believers of their faith in the Word of God. I'm amazed at how relevant that research is to the kinds of things that we see all around us. It's one of the things that motivates me to teach, whether in person, which is what I'm used to, or online, which is what I'm trying to get used to to be able to help fortify people's faith in the face of a shaking secularism, a destabilizing worldliness, or even just the earthquakes in diverse places that come into each of our lives. Anyway, however you found your way here, I'm grateful that you've joined me. I pray that these lessons will be a blessing to you, that you'll find inspiration in the comments down below, that you're welcome to engage in conversation with fellow saints who are striving to become unshaken. I hope that you'll join us. Subscribe, Click on notifications so you don't miss anything. Join in the conversations down below. Realize that there are saints all over the world who are striving to become unshaken in their faith in Jesus Christ. With that, let's turn to the Book of Mormon for this week. Alma 13 through 16. Where Alma and Amulek are continuing their ministry, really concluding it in Ammonihah, teaching about the priesthood in chapter 13, witnessing the martyrdom of the faithful in chapter 14 participating in the healing and conversion of Zeezrom in 15, and then witnessing the destruction of Ammonihah in 16. All of this in anticipation, by the way, of next week where we begin these incredible missionary chapters with Ammon and his brothers, the sons of Mosiah. Definitely stay tuned for those chapters. They're incredible. But for today, chapter 13 starts in flow. The scene hasn't changed. They haven't introduced any new props or backgrounds. It hasn't been intermission at the theater. All that Alma taught in chapter 12 leads directly in to what he teaches now in chapter 13. So hopefully, some of last week's lesson is still floating around in the brain somewhere. Of course, you can always go back and watch those videos if you haven't had a chance yet. But in chapter 12, Alma focused on this space of time, this gap that opened up because Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but were not yet permitted to partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Our mortal probation, or as we discussed last week, our mortal preparation, consists of the time that opened between those two fruits. If you're a fan of John Milton, and we should be, his stuff's amazing, this is paradise lost, and this is paradise regained. 
And that's not just Adam and Eve that Milton was writing about. This is all of us. This is creation, fall, atonement. This is the story arc of life for every one of us in so many aspects of life. And here we are in this fallen stage, having left God's presence and hoping to regain God's presence. What are we doing here? Are we repenting? Are we exercising faith in the redemption that's been promised us? Are we preparing ourselves well during this preparatory state? With that in mind, we shift from the end of 12 with Alma's call to repent, to harden not our hearts, to prepare to enter into the rest of God, which is prepared according to his word, to what we see now in chapter 13, verse 1. Again, my brethren, I would cite your minds forward to the time when the Lord God gave these commandments unto his children. It's interesting that he would say, cite your minds forward, because it seems like he's drawing our minds back to ancient, ancient history. However, so much of chapter 12 is this premortal plan instituted from before the foundation of the world to allow this gap to occur, to grant us time to change and repent. So from that premortal plan, from that fall, where Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, now let's cite our minds forward to the moment when God gave commandments unto the children of men, which describes most of Old Testament history. From the first angel that was sent by God to teach the law of sacrifice to Adam and Eve, on through Enoch and Noah, on through Abraham and Moses, crescendoing with Jesus Christ and continuing anew in our dispensation from Joseph Smith until Russell M. Nelson today. Remember what he said in chapter 12. God gave commandments after having made known the plan of salvation. Both of those are key, and that's the role of prophets, or in this case, high priests in each dispensation, to make known God's plan, and within that context, to clarify God's commandments. If God's plan involved our leaving his presence, there had to be a way for us to get the directions to find our way home. And that's what Alma is teaching in chapter 13. As he picks up, I would that ye should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his son. Why did he need them? To teach these things unto the people. Notice the word order. That's such a focus of verse 1. He ordained priests after his holy order. It was after the order of his son. Even that word ordained or our word ordinance comes from that same root. It all focuses on the order of God's son. So think about those vocabulary words for the day. Order, ordain, ordinance. To ordain is to establish in or to set apart for a particular office or order. An ordinance is a rule established by authority or an established rite or ceremony. For any of you with Catholic backgrounds or if you've studied Catholicism, then the idea of religious orders is probably very familiar to you. A group set apart for a certain purpose. Some of the more famous are the Benedictine order that focuses on prayer or manual labor and scripture. The Franciscan order with their emphasis on wandering, preaching, these itinerant preachers, poverty. The Dominican order, with its focus on prayer and study and preaching. The Augustinian order, with its liturgy and communion and study. The Jesuit order is very well known. Their emphasis is on education or service. The Carmelite order, a focus on contemplation and prayer and service. These are beautiful organizations within Catholicism. 
not just to give people an order to be a part of. This is not just some kind of fraternity, rather an order to follow. It reminds me of John Wesley with Methodism, not trying to create a new religion, but rather to give order, to provide a method of righteousness, of discipleship to members of the Church of England that he was trying to help along the path home. So much of our own church's organization is meant to provide method, order, to channel our desires in the direction of righteousness. That's what the priesthood is. Here in verse 1, he calls it the holy order after the order of his son. If you remember section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that incredible revelation focused on priesthood order and ordinances from start to finish. At the very beginning, it speaks of the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. I hope I said that with the right amount of reverence. Because as we know, the following verse out of respect or reverence to the name of the Supreme Being, to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, they, the church in ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek, or the Melchizedek priesthood. But I do hope we know what we are not saying when we are saying Melchizedek priesthood. We are focused on the Father and the Son. We are recognizing them as the source of this power and authority, the head of this order, the authors of these ordinances, the ones who are creating a discipline in order to make disciples of each of us. What a blessing that all of us, male and female alike, can be a part of the order that God has left us to help us find our way home. For me, that was one of the amazing things about divinity school. I was on the academic route to become a professor, but others were there to become ministers to follow a certain order of things. So while the majority of my classes were in religious history, I had friends and colleagues that were taking classes in pastoral care, in homiletics, which is the art of preaching, in liturgics, which is worship service, ordinances, and so forth. It hit me as I was watching all of these amazing people prepare for the ministry that as a Latter-day Saint, I'd been preparing for the ministry my whole life. Homiletics for us? We've been giving talks in church since primary. Liturgics, beyond receiving our own baptism, we're performing baptisms, including baptisms for the dead. We're participating in the sacrament, blessing, preparing, passing, pastoral care. I can't think of a better way to describe ministering to one another. With full-time missions being the ultimate immersion in the life of a full-time minister. Talk about being part of an order. And unlike those orders we saw previously, the Benedictines or the Franciscans that were named after people, St. Benedict, St. Francis, as incredible as they were, to belong to the order of the Son of God, to be a part of His order, what an incredible honor. And what an incredible responsibility to live up to. And again, as far as Alma is concerned, what is the First and foremost responsibility of anyone in that order to teach these things unto the people. It's like Lehi said way back at the beginning of the book, how great the importance to make these things known unto the children of men. It's the essence of the gospel, teaching. Few and far between are the callings that we have that don't allow us, enable us, authorize us, expect us to teach to teach the plan, to teach the commandments within the context of that plan. 
Now in verse 2, it starts to get interesting. Those priests were ordained after the order of his son, in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. That verse should unlock our perspective on the priesthood from here on out. That this order, with its ordinations and its ordinances, are meant to point us forward to Jesus Christ. After all, it's his order, right? And so everything that we do and everything that we participate in through the priesthood is meant to focus us on Jesus Christ, to know what to expect. Remember, these are B.C. saints. And so as priests are ordained after the order of God's Son, we get a sneak peek, a preview of coming attractions, an idea of what it will be like when Jesus Christ is among us. Here's a few ways to take that. If you go to Abraham chapter 1 in the Pearl of Great Price, I know there's all kinds of controversy out there about the historicity of the book of Abraham and translation issues with Joseph Smith and modern Egyptologists and so on. I get it. I understand where people are coming from on that. But the content of the book of Abraham, which seems to get lost in the shuffle in this argument over its provenance, is absolutely incredible. However the book came forth, what's actually inside it is breathtaking. Modern Egyptologists may argue over what Joseph should have written in this book, but none have made a successful attempt of explaining what's actually in this book. And if you look at Abraham chapter 1 verse 2, Abraham's had a rough upbringing. We see it later in the chapter that his father tried to sacrifice him to pagan gods. But in verse 2 he says that finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same. There's that word. I wanted to be ordained to administer the blessings of God. I wanted to join his holy order. Why? Because I knew there was something better out there. I knew there was greater happiness and greater peace and greater rest for me. Those are three of my favorite words to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every investigator that meets with the missionaries, every new convert who joins the church, every less active that finds their way back home, it's because they knew there was something missing. A greater portion. Remember that phrase that we used last week so often? The greater portion of the word that God is willing to offer to those with a softened heart. Well, those with the soft heart know there's something better out there. Greater happiness greater peace, greater rest, and it comes through the blessings of the fathers, the blessings God has administered through his ordinances by members of his holy order. Abraham doesn't just want to receive them for himself. This is not self-centered discipleship. I want to be ordained to administer the same so that others can have this. I'm not alone in wanting greater happiness, peace, and rest. He was a follower of righteousness already. But he wanted to be a greater follower of righteousness. He had knowledge, knowledge enough to know where to look for these blessings, but he wanted to be one who possessed great knowledge and eventually to possess even greater knowledge. There's such a sense of progression, of growth in these phrases. He wanted to be a father of many nations. His name itself suggests that. His desire was to be a prince of peace. Who do we usually associate with that title? He wanted to receive instructions. Again, a sense of growth, of learning, 
of wanting to have greater knowledge. And not just to receive the instructions, but to follow them, to keep the commandments of God. All of those were his desires. And as a result of those desires, he says at the end of verse 2, I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. I joined God's order. I was ordained to that service so that I could offer his ordinances to everyone else. That is what priesthood is. That is what Alma is embodying to the people of Ammonihah. And all of those things are meant to show us what to look for in God's Son. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the ultimate follower of righteousness because he's righteousness itself. He's the ultimate source of knowledge because he is the Word of God. There is no greater source of happiness, peace, and rest than him. And so when someone is ordained to his holy order, it's to point people in that direction. It's what they're seeking. It's what they're helping other people obtain. Not only can we look to the book of Abraham, we can look back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, where we meet our first high priest, at least as far as the Old Testament text is concerned. According to Jewish legend, Aaron, Moses' big brother, was not actually the first high priest. Jewish legend suggests that earlier high priests included Enoch, Noah, Shem, Melchizedek, Abraham. Remember, Abraham was talking about the rights belonging to the fathers. When we think of the fathers, or as we call them, the patriarchs, same word, we think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, who would Abraham have thought of? Adam, Shem, Enoch, Noah. These were the fathers he was looking to. But Aaron, the brother of Moses, really is a wonderful place to begin. Exodus chapter 28, which should be interesting to any member of the church who has received temple ordinances before, lets us know a little bit about how high priests were ordained, specifically what they wore. What was the priesthood uniform? And again, if verse 2 of Alma 13 tells us that these priests were ordained in a way that we should look forward to Jesus Christ, then that tips us off. That everything about those ancient high priests was meant to point us forward to Jesus. It's kind of like what Amulek will say in a later chapter. That every wit, every detail of the law of Moses was meant to point forward to the great and last sacrifice, that of Jesus Christ. Well, if that's true of the ordinances, law of sacrifice, it's also true of the ordination as priests take upon themselves this holy order. According to Exodus 28, all priests that is, descendants of Levi, that tribe from, of Israel, were to wear linen undergarments, a tunic, a sash, and a cap or turban of sorts. Now the high priest, which was also of the tribe of Levi, but specifically a descendant of Aaron, also, in addition to those four things, was supposed to wear a priestly robe, an ephod, which was some kind of vest or apron that had precious stones on its shoulders, they also wore a breastplate with precious stones across the chest and a golden plate across that turban, which said holiness to the Lord. They also had a Urim and Thummim to aid in revelation. Now think about each of those elements and if they are ordained in a way that is meant to help people, themselves included, think forward and look forward to Jesus Christ, then what do all of those things mean? I remember the first year I played football and they passed out all of the equipment we we're supposed to wear. 
The helmet, I obviously knew where that went. Shoulder pads, I was good. But it was all the pads for the pants that I was completely confused by. I remember hanging back in the locker room and kind of looking around nonchalantly to just see where are the other players putting these pads. Like, oh, oh, knee pad. Okay, that's where that, there's, there's pockets on, all, on the inside of, of football pants. And I was starting to see, oh, those are knee pads. Let's go with that. Oh, thigh pads. That goes out. Hip pads. Oh, tailbone pad. I was so relieved that other people knew what they were doing because I had no idea. And I think often uniforms can be like that. And yet if we have the eyes to see, everything in that uniform is there for a purpose. Every pad that I was supposed to wear protected something. And with this particular priesthood uniform, everything was meant to point them forward to Jesus Christ and to help them understand as a bearer and wearer of the priesthood, how am I helping bring people to Christ myself. I won't go into every detail. Just go spend some time in Exodus 28 yourself. You'll have a blast. But even things like the shoulders, those precious stones that were placed there, each one had six tribes of Israel etched, engraven into the stone. And what is the priesthood all about? What did Alma, the elder, Alma's dad, say back in Mosiah chapter 18? That part of the baptismal covenant, part of this ordinance that we've received, is to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. As a bearer and wearer of the priesthood, do we recognize where the house of Israel is upon our shoulders? The breastplate of righteousness had 12 stones. Any guess why there were 12 of them? Sure enough, each stone had the name of one of the tribes of Israel carved into it, etched into stone. There's no erasing this responsibility. And what these aren't just average rocks that are arranged in this 12. These are precious stones. Do we recognize who we're serving, who we have responsibility for, but who we're serving and how we ought to serve them? They are over our hearts, after all. These precious gems that make up a priest's breastplate of judgment. That golden plate across the forehead is holiness to the Lord always on the forefront of our minds? Is that what we're thinking about as we function within this priesthood order? There's so much more, but those are three of my favorites. There's obscure details like all around the robe, the hem of the robe of the high priest were these woven pomegranates. Well, in the ancient world, the pomegranate was a symbol of fertility of fruitfulness. Cut open a pomegranate and what do you see? Seeds everywhere. Well, God is expecting us to be fruitful in our priesthood service. And those little woven pomegranates were alternated with bells. Can you imagine walking around as a high priest? You wouldn't be able to sneak up on anyone. And there's something about that when it comes to God's holy order as well. That your presence should be known. But anywhere one goes, the people can hear the presence of God through his ordained servants. Even the colors. If you were to look at a high priest and in his priestly uniform, you would see the colors of the rainbow. All of them. And what might that remind us of? The covenant God made with Noah. In fact, the covenant that God made with Enoch JST clarifies that Enoch's rainbow preceded Noah's rainbow. It wasn't just, I won't flood the earth again. It was just as Zion was caught up to heaven, so shall it descend from heaven.
That rainbow connects heaven and earth. That's what Zion is all about. Anyway, all of these things are meant to point us forward to Jesus Christ. He is the high priest of good things to come. He has our names etched on his heart. He is bearing our burdens like no one else can. He doesn't just think about holiness to the Lord. He is holiness personified. I just hope that every time an ancient high priest got dressed in the morning, when he wore what he bore, the holy priesthood, after the order of the Son of God, that he knew who he was representing to the people, and that when they looked at him, they saw the Savior who he represented. Priests in ancient Israel were washed so they could be clean. They were anointed with oil. Mashiach, Messiah, means the anointed one. That's Hebrew. Christos, Christ, that means anointed one in Greek. When those joining God's holy order were washed and anointed with water and with oil, they were becoming saviors on Mount Zion themselves. They offered sacrifice as Jesus would. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they entered the Holy of Holies, the presence of God himself. They parted the veil so that they could enter. Just as Jesus, at the crucifixion, entered God's presence and left the veil of the temple rent in twain from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. It wasn't us ripping our way in, forcing our way into heaven. It was God opening the door, ripping that veil apart, as if to say, it will never be closed again. Come, enter my presence. I'm inviting you. You want an interesting day, month, year, lifetime of Old Testament scripture study? Then study the priests, those high priests particularly, with an eye to Alma 13.2, that everything about them was so that people might know in what manner to look forward to God's Son for redemption. There's a meeting in the church held every year that's meant to help young men and young women prepare to leave the primary and grow into the next stage of their discipleship, the next step along the order. And it's called a temple and priesthood preview the pre-view, to see it in advance. And it's a meeting meant to help little girls and little boys, those that are turning 12 next year, understand a little bit more of what they're preparing for. It struck me this week as I was studying chapter 13, verse 2, that everything about the priesthood is a priesthood preview. But the priesthood is the means, not the ends. All the years I've been part of that meeting, it always felt like I'm trying to give these young boys a preview of what it means to bear the priesthood. I'm trying to help these young girls and young boys understand what temple ordinances will be like as they begin to participate in baptisms for the dead. But you see this? It's not that we're trying to preview the priesthood. The priesthood is the preview. The priesthood is the preview of Jesus Christ himself, our high priest of good things to come. He's the one worth looking forward to. And my question for myself and for all of us, male and female, any who work in God's order, according to his ordinances, when people see us and how we serve, 
and how we lift and how we bless and how we lead, do they see Jesus? Is my service or leadership a preview of things to come? When he comes and offers us his redemption, will it feel familiar to them? Or will his leadership style come as a shock to those that were only used to my cheap imitation? I hope that we are preparing people well to see Jesus and recognize I've been seeing him all along through the ordinances and ordinations and members of his order. Now in 13.3, Alma gets a little more specific about how these priests were ordained. So in addition to what we've seen in Abraham and what we've seen in Exodus, now we can see even more clearly exactly what Alma had in mind. This is the manner after which they were ordained. He's going to go more big picture and tie it back into pre-mortality like he'd been doing in chapter 12, laying out the forest instead of just the trees as far as the plan of salvation is concerned. Here's how it happened. They were called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? This is the preview of him after all. He was called and prepared from before the foundation of the world as are all those who are foreordained to serve in his name. Joseph Smith taught that, that anyone that's involved in the salvation of other people was foreordained to that very purpose. We could say foreordained, foreknown, forecalled, forechosen, forprepared. We just can't say they were forejudged or foresaved with a foregone conclusion. Foreordination is not predestination, at least not as most Calvinists described it. Back to three, all of this was done according to the foreknowledge of God. That's his end, but how about ours? On account of their exceeding faith and good works. So both of those were possible in premortality. We could exercise faith even in God's presence. It wouldn't have been faith in God's existence. That was obvious. He was right there before us. But faith in God's plan, that's what the entire war in heaven was over. Our good works, will those be necessary or not? as part of this reconciliation of our will, what we're going to fill the gap with during our gap year here on earth. Those that lived up to this foreordination, again, male or female, were in the first place left to choose good or evil. Amazing that this is describing premortality. We were left to choose good or evil. We sometimes assume that this premortal war in heaven was over agency. It was, but people will say, oh, well, God was offering agency and Satan didn't want to have it. It's not that God's plan was offering agency. We already had it. How else could we choose whether or not to accept the plan in the first place? We had agency. Moses chapter 4 verse 3 says that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him. We already had it. God's plan, therefore, didn't offer us agency. It was a means to preserve our agency and to protect our agency, or better said, to protect us from the abuse of our agency, the negative consequences of our poor use of our agency. From the very beginning, we were left to choose good or evil. And what did the future bearers of God's order do? They chose good. They exercised exceedingly great faith. And as a result, They were called with a holy calling. 
yea, with that holy calling which was prepared with and according to, brace yourself, here's the phrase, a preparatory redemption for such. A what? A preparatory redemption. In chapter 12, we talked about this preparatory state, but now we're seeing that there was also a preparatory redemption. Well, redemption only comes through Jesus Christ. We talk about the atonement being prepared from the foundation of the world. Well, he likewise was prepared from before the foundation of the world. Remember Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, that Christ was a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Or how about Moses chapter 1 verse 6, where Moses is told that mine only begotten is and shall be the Savior, for he is full of grace and truth. Talk about fascinating verb tenses. It reminds me of Abinadi. Remember when he says, and if Jesus had not come, and then he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, we're still BC saints. He hasn't come yet. Uh, Well, speaking of things to come as though they already had come, that's how he saves himself there. It's hard to erase on gold plates, right? But this sense of if he hadn't come, well, I might as well speak of it in the past tense since I know he'll come in the future. If the atonement is infinite and eternal, then its blessings stretch out in both directions infinitely and eternally. This same Alma will explain this again when he talks to Corianton later in the book, that the worth of a BC saint's soul is as much as the worth of an A.D. saint's soul. So for a B.C. Moses, he's told not just that Jesus Christ will be the Savior, he's told he already is. He is and shall be the Savior. And with that saving atonement in place, then his redemption can be preparatory even throughout premortality. Otherwise, none of us are worthy of receiving God's order or ordinances or his ordination in this life. You see, back in three, we were left to choose, even in premortality. We sometimes think, oh, no, 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 we lived in God's presence. There couldn't have possibly been sin. What do you think the war in heaven was? Rebellion against God? A third of the stars of heaven wrapped up in the dragon's tail and dragged down to earth? That's sin. And that was happening in God's presence. We sometimes joke that the council in heaven was like a pre-mortal family home evening. Well, you've been there. Family home evenings start with a prayer and end with a fight, right? Well, that's not always the case, but it was for this one. What gave us hope that we could do it better in mortality? In fact, what gave us the chance to even try? Christ's atonement, his preparatory redemption. It wasn't just a matter of when I go to earth, I'll start trusting in Christ's atonement because boy, will I need it then. We could have said that even before we got here. I was left to choose good or evil and I didn't always choose well. And so I exercised great faith in the promise that God had made. Who shall I send? As soon as Christ's holy hand was raised and he said, here am I, send me. What does John see in the book of Revelation, chapter 5? That all creation, premortally, that had been weeping a moment before when it didn't seem like anyone was going to be able to perform this saving mission, our sorrow turned to joy. Our tears turned to song. As we rejoiced in that, we exercised exceeding great faith. Because we knew that Jesus was and would be the Savior. 
we knew he had been prepared from before the foundation of the world and that his redemption was already happening within us because we knew that someday it would actually take place upon an earth to which we would each be sent. It's amazing to me. I've said this before in another video that chronologically we think creation, fall, atonement. But logically we should think atonement, fall, creation. Yes, in terms of what happened first, literally on the timeline, God created the universe. There was a fall of Adam and Eve. And then Christ came in the meridian of time to atone for the sins of humanity. But logically, when God set up the plan, his question at the start, whom shall I send? I need an atoning one. We need the atonement first and foremost. Now to drive people to that atonement, to wake them up to a recognition of their need for it, there must needs be a fall. And I guess for this to happen, there needs to be a place for it to take place. So there needs to be a creation. Logically, atonement, fall, creation. So that then it could roll out chronologically, creation, fall, atonement. But that infinite, eternal atonement included a preparatory redemption. There's even a fascinating phrase in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants where he talks about pre-mortality growing into mortality. And he says this, DNC 9338, Every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning, and God having redeemed man from the fall, men became again in their infant state, innocent before God. Now we might simply see this as a refutation of the doctrine of original sin. And it is, but look closer, men became again in their infant state, innocent. Wait, innocent again? If we were innocent at the very beginning and then became innocent again at mortal birth, something must have happened to that innocence in the interim, which ties in perfectly with what we just saw in Alma chapter 13. We were left to choose good and evil. Yes, there were good works, but there must have been bad ones. Yes, we exercised faith, but that means there was also cause for doubt. There was a war in heaven. But there was a preparatory redemption so that when we were born, we could come innocent again. We see elsewhere in scripture that children, little children, are alive in Christ. Well, it's not just because they're perfect little angels. It's because Christ forgives them and washes them clean of their pre-mortal sins before we even start racking up mortal ones. Placing faith in Christ and his atonement in this life is not the first time that we have done so. We've been doing that since the dawn of existence. And having done so in the past, it's meant to point our minds forward to doing it again in our present. Alma 13.4, they had been called to this holy calling on account of their faith. That keeps coming up. While others would reject the Spirit of God on account of the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds. Those two phrases we've seen several times through Alma and Amulek's discourse thus far. So receiving the greater or the lesser portion of the word, that's been happening for a long, long time too. And in premortality, just as in mortality, it was on account of the hardness or softness of our heart the blindness or the clear sight of our minds. Now, if it hadn't been for this, they might have had as great privilege as their brethren. I love that he calls the priesthood a great privilege. It's not just a burden on those 
shoulders, right? Those are precious stones after all. It is a privilege to bear them. Do we recognize that as we are called to labor in God's vineyard? Or are we haggling over the penny that we receive at the end of the day? The privilege was promised to us all from the very beginning. It was ours for the taking because of the goodness of God. In verse 5, in the first place, they were on the same standing with their brethren. There was no hierarchy. This was not God playing favorites. Same standing, even playing field. Great privilege offered to all. But some hearts were softer and some were harder. Some choosing good and others not so much. Some exercising great faith and others wrestling with their doubt. But this holy calling, verse 5 continues, was prepared from the foundation of the world for such as would not harden their hearts. There's the lesser portion. And it all was in and through the atonement of the only begotten Son who was prepared. That's back to that preparatory redemption idea. Now I need to say something here and I want to be sensitive as I say it. Especially during this present period of so much racial unrest in the United States. The tragedies that we've seen throughout so much of recent and past history, outside the church and, sadly, inside it as well. The idea that the priesthood privilege could have been everyone's and yet has not always been everyone's has sometimes been explained on the basis of this kind of doctrine. Now, the doctrine is true. Many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because they set their hearts too much upon the things of the world. They look for a priesthood to gratify their pride or to satisfy their vain ambition or to cover their sins and amen to the priesthood of that man. But unfortunately, those true doctrines, which are meant for each of us to look inward, to look in the mirror and grapple with our own natural man, unfortunately, there have been times in the past where church members and even some church leaders have used these kinds of doctrines to suggest a lower level of valiancy in premortality as justification or rationalization or explanation for the priesthood ban that was lifted upon those of African descent in 1978. And that is not why that ban existed. We don't know all the reasons why it did how much of its existence can and should be chalked up to human error. I've read much of the research that's been done on that to contextualize racial views in mid-19th century America, not just for early Mormonism, but throughout American Protestantism particularly, to see racial views in the mid to late 20th century, the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and others. I'm so grateful for the excellent work of historians and researchers like Lester Bush, or Edward Kimball, or Paul Reeve, or Greg Prince. There's some amazing things that have been done there. Or the lived experience of incredible pioneer saints like Darius Gray in the United States, or Moses Malangu in South Africa, Dale LeBaron's incredible history of the growth of the church in black Africa, long before the revelation came to President Kimball in 1978. I simply want to say that True doctrine, as much of a blessing as it is, is a dangerous thing when it's not accompanied by true interpretation. And those interpretations have to come from God. I'm grateful that the church has repudiated any past explanations of that ban. 
including those that might have been grounded in misinterpretations of Alma chapter 13. That was not a premortal lack of valiance. So we have to be extremely careful about filling in blanks that God has left blank of saying more than we really know when so many things we simply don't know. I am so grateful to be alive in a time when the church can be in the forefront of racial reconciliation. And I pray that you and I on the ground as church members can be anxiously engaged in those good causes. And I pray that for our individual and collective failings, that we can trust in the atonement of the only begotten Son who was prepared. That preparatory redemption, which is ongoing. I know that's a question I need to be asking myself. Not taking priesthood or lack thereof as any indication of who I was premortally, but rather as a wake-up call to who I am trying to become mortally. Am I exercising faith and engaged in good works? Am I choosing good? Am I softening my heart? Am I trusting in God's redemption? Maybe it's less a matter of trying to make sense of why other people didn't have the priesthood and doing more to understand why don't I have its power in greater abundance in my life. Lord, is it I? It is. And what more should I be doing? Verse 6, Thus being called by this holy calling, ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God. Again, what's it for? Verse 6 ends the same way verse 1 did, to teach his commandments unto the children of men. And to what end? That they also might enter into his rest. That's everything the priesthood is for, to help people home. In the famous King Follett discourse that Joseph Smith taught in Nauvoo shortly before his martyrdom, he said this, God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. That was God's generosity from the very beginning, from before any beginning we could possibly imagine. It was a way to lift people up, not to keep people down. A way to integrate and become one with him. That's what at one moment was always for. Not to separate and divide us. And since God had figured it out, God was God, what did he do for us? He told us how to become like him. Not to usurp his authority, not to take his throne, but rather to take our place on it, beside him, like the book of Revelation describes. It's always been a saved seat. He who wants to share with us all things. And so he's taught us. He instituted laws, Joseph said, so that we could have a privilege to advance like himself. Well, here again, we see a great privilege. We see laws being instituted and commandments taught so that we know how to come home and how to be like God when we get there. Verse 7, this high priesthood being after the order of his son, which order was from the foundation of the world, or in other words, being without beginning of days or end of years, it was prepared from eternity to all eternity, according to God's foreknowledge in all things. They were ordained after this manner, being called with a holy calling, ordained with a holy ordinance, taking upon them, I love that, we take it, It's a voluntary acceptance, not some kind of forced conscription into labor. 
we take upon ourselves the high priesthood of the holy order, which calling and ordinance and high priesthood is without beginning or end. That's how they became high priests forever, after the order of his Son, the only begotten of the Father, without beginning of days or end of years, who is full of grace, equity, and truth. And thus it is. Amen. Now it seems that Alma is pausing to catch his breath there. We saw an amen after all. And again, don't lose sight of the context here. Sadly, because of the chapter breaks and the chapter headings, we just kind of, oh, we're starting Alma 13 this week. Great. Oh, awesome lesson about the priesthood. And we completely forget who is speaking to whom. This is Alma, the high priest of the church, talking specifically to Zeezrom and within earshot, the rest of the assembled people of Ammonihah. What is Alma saying to Zeezrom? He's talking about himself, a high priest who has come to teach commandments to people within the context of the plan of salvation. Zeezrom, we, Alma and Amulek, we are here as true messengers. We have been called and prepared before the foundation of the world to represent our Savior, Jesus Christ. We bring God's message of redemption to you. We bear his authority to perform his saving ordinances. We help people home. This whole thing, creation, fall, atonement, it was part of the plan from the very beginning. You're in the middle of it as we speak. You're not a lost cause. It's not too late. You haven't gone too far. You can come home as a messenger of Jesus Christ. I testify of that. You've been fighting against this plan. Now, please let it work in your favor. Thus it is. Amen. You see how clearly Alma sees it? How clearly he wants the people of Ammonihah, Zeezrom himself, to see it? My wife has always been good at clearly seeing that she's in the middle of the plan of salvation, that we all are. I remember once driving down Broadway in Nashville, and she's seeing someone on the road and saying, out of the blue, do you think they know they're in the middle of the plan of salvation? And it kind of jolted me back into reality. I thought, probably not since I kind of had forgotten that I was. Here we are in the thick of it. Our preparatory state, are we using it well? Are we taking advantage of the grace that fills this gap? Are we improving upon the time, preparing to come home and enter into God's rest? See, Ezra, you're right in the middle of it. It's happening as we speak. Now, perhaps letting that settle in, he then picks up where he left off. Verse 10, the, the amen didn't echo for long before he recommenced his discourse. Now, as I said concerning the holy order, or this holy priesthood, there were many who were ordained and became high priests of God. It was on account of their exceeding faith, their repentance. You see, it's like he's reiterating all that he said in those earlier verses in this chapter. Their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish. It's like now it's hint, hint, Zeezrom, you can exercise faith, you can repent, you can choose to work righteousness. You don't have to perish. Verse 11, those that did so were called after this holy order. They were sanctified. Their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. That's how they became innocent again, even at birth. 
you too can become innocent again at rebirth. Your garments can be washed white. Remember, this is Alma the Younger talking here. He's been through the process himself. He gets it. Verse 12, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, having their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, they could not look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. That describes Alma the Younger's experience. That describes the people of King Benjamin, right? They had no more disposition to do evil, but only to do good continually. There were many, Alma says, exceedingly great many. And there's still room for more, Zeezrom. There's still room for more, people of Ammonihah. Many, great many, who were made pure and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. Knowing there's still room, verse 13, he says, Now, my brethren, I would that ye should humble yourselves before God. It's your pride that's keeping you from doing it. Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. That's the kind of fruit we should be producing in that space between the fruit of knowledge and the fruit of life and love. All this that we may enter into that rest, that greater happiness and peace and rest that has been prepared for each of us. Enter, just come in. Yea, humble yourselves. Even as the people in the days of Melchizedek, who was also a high priest, after the same order which I have spoken, who also took upon him the high priesthood forever. See, he's trying to set out these precedents for the people of Ammonihah. Alma is the Melchizedek here, the high priest. And if people would just humble themselves like they did for him, Abraham himself, the father of the faithful, humbled himself and came and paid tithes to Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace. The context of that humble offering is beautiful in the Old Testament. Having just returned from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, it's described, where he rescued his nephew Lot and returned with the treasures of the cities that had been conquered earlier, including that of Sodom. And yet when the king of Sodom offers Abraham all of these riches, Abraham says, he brushes them off. I don't want anything from a thread to a shoe latchet from you. I wouldn't even keep your shoelace. And instead of receiving the riches of Sodom pridefully, he offers tithes to Melchizedek humbly. It's not just what Abraham did. It's what he refused to do. That's so beautiful in that story. Well, here this Book of Mormon Melchizedek, here Alma the Younger, the great high priest of the church is inviting the people of Ammonihah to do likewise. That's what he suggests in verse 15. The humility of Abraham in paying tithes to Melchizedek, one-tenth of all he possessed. 16, now these ordinances were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God. He said that way back in verse 2. Everything about the priesthood, order, ordinances, ordinations, pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. It was a type of his order. It was his order. And this, that they might look forward to him for a remission of their sins, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. It's always that order. You look to Christ so that you can look to forgiveness, so that you can look to God and know that you're welcome to come home. Verse 17, he reminds us of Melchizedek himself. 
king over the land of Salem. They would have known about this from the brass plates. His people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. Sound familiar, people of Ammonihah? They had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. But Melchizedek didn't give up on them. More importantly, God didn't give up on them, which is why he sent Melchizedek as a representative of his order. Melchizedek exercised mighty faith and woke up the faith of those people. He received the high priesthood according to the holy order of God. And with it, he preached repentance unto his people, just like Amulek and I have been doing. Behold, they did repent, will you? Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his days. Can we? That's why he was called the Prince of Peace. He was the King of Salem. Salem is shalom, same thing, peace. He reigned under his father. Here we are trying to do the same. These beautiful feet upon the mountains, publishing peace under the direction of our Heavenly Father. 19. There were many before Melchizedek. There were many after. You're looking at one of them as we speak, he could say. But none were greater. That's why we talk about him more often than other people. That's why we can substitute his name for the full name of the priesthood. It's a closer substitution than most other names would be. By the way, in the appendix at the end of the Bible that has the longer passages of the Joseph Smith translation, places it was too long to include in the footnotes down below, the JST of Genesis 14, 25 through 40, is one of the best places to come to know Melchizedek himself, this great high priest. I'll only read a small portion, verse 30 and 31, which tells us that God swore to Enoch and his seed with an oath by himself that everyone ordained after this order. In fact, in Doctrine and Covenant 76, we're told that the order of Melchizedek is simply an echo of the order of Enoch, which is, of course, an echo of the order of the Son of God. Well, anyone in this order would have power, notice the list, power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth. Now, in our video about Jacob chapter 4, I talked a little bit about what some of these things might look like in our day. I have moved mountains. I have turned rivers out of their course but not in the way that some might imagine. But notice what he says in the middle of 31. These two powers are my favorite. First, to break every band. That's what the priesthood is meant to accomplish in our lives, both bearers and receivers of its ordinances, to break the bands of sin and death. That's what Jesus does, and that's what his representatives are meant to do. And then this one, to stand in the presence of God. That is what the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood are meant to accomplish, to prepare us to stand in the presence of God. I'll take that over a moved mountain or a turned river any day. Now back to Alma 13 in verse 20. Now I need not rehearse the matter. We've been doing a lot of that rehearsing ourselves. Alma wasn't going to go into such detail. What I have said may suffice. Good enough for him. Behold, the scriptures are before you. If you will rest them, it shall be to your own destruction. You want to twist them? 
I was just researching some late 18th century ministers, and they used the word twistification. I love that. That's resting the scripture. When you're twistifying, engaging in twistification to try to get the scriptures to agree with you instead of changing your heart, turning yourself to God so that you change to meet the truth of scripture. Well, there's the scriptures. I've been quoting them. Antiona, you've obviously read them and you were asking me about something. I've tried to explain as best I can. You guys know about Melchizedek. You know about these things. You got the scriptures right in front of you. You want to keep twisting. These are lawyers, right? This is the Ezra. You want to talk about experts in twistification. That's what they do all the time to try to get things to seem right, even when they aren't. Well, if you plan on continuing to do so, be my guest, but it will lead to your destruction. But having honored their agency, he then establishes what he's doing with his own. Verse 21, when Alma had said these words, he stretched forth his hand to them and cried with a mighty voice. It's his turn to be the angel now, right? Shake the earth as the voice of a trump. Now is the time to repent, for the day of salvation draweth nigh. This is Abinadi taking off the disguise. This is Amulek introducing himself to his people. This is Alma bearing the holy priesthood. And as a true messenger of God, he commands them to repent and to do it now. For the day, there's only one, the day of salvation draweth nigh. This is what this entire message, started back in chapter 8, boils down to. Repent. That's what this whole thing is about. 22, the voice of the Lord by the mouth of angels. I saw one. Amulek saw one. Those angels declare it unto all nations. Yea, it doth declare it that they may have glad tidings of great joy. Every time you see that phrase, it's pointing to the birth of Jesus. We read it every Christmas Eve on, in Luke 2, right? Yea, he doth sound these glad tidings among all his people. That's what we're doing here among you. Yea, even to them that are scattered abroad upon the face of the earth, Wherefore they have come unto us, us, this broken branch, scattered Israel, here on the isles of the sea. 23, they are made known unto us in plain terms that we may understand, so plain we cannot err. And this because of our being wanderers in a strange land. Therefore we are thus highly favored, for we have these glad tidings declared unto us in all parts of our vineyard. For behold, Angels are declaring it unto many at this time in our land. It's not just me and Amulek. This is for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive his word at the time of his coming in his glory. That's the ministry of ministering angels, to prepare people's hearts for greater things yet to come. The voice of him crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. That was John's mission. That's every angel's mission. That's every priesthood bearer's mission to declare the glad tidings, to prepare the hearts so that when Jesus comes and really teaches his gospel, we will have already had the preview. The better we get at receiving God's words through his servants, the more naturally it will feel to receive the word of God from the Son of God himself. That's the receiving end. And as far as the giving end, all of us who are called in any way to share the gospel with others, and that's all of us, 
are we doing it in such a way that we are preparing people to get the real thing? Will it feel familiar to them? Yeah, thank you, Lord, for all you are teaching me. This feels familiar. I've been taught like this for a long, long time. Verse 25 is then one of my all-time favorite verses. And now we only wait. Now, if you're waiting, you're already ready, right? You're not scrambling last-second preparation. I'm ready and waiting. Now we only wait to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming. I love that. We're ready. We're just waiting. We've got our lamps trimmed and burning. We've got extra oil in our vessels. Now, here we are just patiently or maybe impatiently waiting the call of the bridegroom that it's time for the wedding. These are the shepherds in Bethlehem keeping watch over their flocks by night, just waiting to hear the glad tidings of great joy, which with their help would soon be to all people, that unto them, unto us, was born that day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the news that Alma is waiting for. It's less than a century away for them. Now, he doesn't know that, He knows that the time is coming, but he admits, we know not how soon. And then he says of the first coming, something I feel so deeply about the second coming. Would to God that it might be in my day. I just want to be here for it. I want to help prepare the world for it. I I hope I'm here when he comes. I know that he will. I try to be as content in my impatience as Alma was. How does he end 25? Let it be sooner or later. In it, I will rejoice. I I agree with that. I will rejoice in the second coming whenever it occurs. But, oh, let it be soon. And let me be here for it. It's like the end of the book of Revelation. When the Lord says to John the Revelator, Behold, I come quickly. And if it were me... I would let that be the end. I would give Jesus the last word. Put the pen down, roll up the scroll, close the parchment, whatever. But let Jesus have the last word. He said he was coming. But this is John the Beloved. He couldn't leave it at that. He had to say two last things because he's so loving. The last one was to all of us as he sends his blessing to every reader of his book. But the second to last was in response to what Jesus had just said. And that's one of my favorite things that John ever lets slip. When the Lord says, Behold, I come quickly, then John the Revelator, who wanted to keep on working until that promise was fulfilled, said in return, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You said you'd come. Please do. Do it soon. Come, thou glorious day of promise. Come and set thy people free. Sooner or later, I will rejoice, but would to God that it would be in my day. When that day comes, it shall be made known unto just and holy men by the mouth of angels at the time of his coming, that the words of our fathers may be fulfilled according to that which they have spoken concerning him. That was their spirit of prophecy. It's ours as well. 
verse 27, Alma just peers through the page and says, Now, my brethren, I wish, I wish from the inmost part of my heart, I wish with great anxiety, even unto pain. This is him teaching with passion again, like we saw back in Alma chapter 5. This is him with power, with pain even, that ye would hearken unto my words. Cast off your sins. Just get rid of them. Throw them away from you as far as they can get. Cast them off. And do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. We talked about this last week. This is that space, this time God has given. He prolongs it. He lengthens it to give us time to repent. But he's also hastening his work. Because unless those days are shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. As he says in Joseph Smith Matthew. Do not procrastinate. Don't extend the time unnecessarily. And in fact, he even calls it the day. Not the days. Just the day. It's the only one we got. Remember that promise, that warning in the Garden of Eden? In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, spiritually, that did happen in the moment. They were immediately separated from God's presence. But it's interesting that if we take the mathematics, the arithmetic that Peter gives us, that one day with God is a thousand years with man. The Old Testament says that Adam lived to be, what, 930? Well, if a thousand years for man is a day with God, then it was even fulfilled in the temporal sense. Spiritual death, yes, they died that day immediately. Physical death, yes, they died that day, 930 years into it. They almost got a full day, but not quite. This is our day, singular, of repentance. It's Amulek who's listening to this that will say in a later chapter that if we don't use today, tomorrow's not going to be very different. He then concludes this chapter, 28. Humble yourselves before the Lord. It's your pride that's stopping you from doing it. Call on his holy name. He's there to listen. Watch and pray continually that ye may not be tempted above that which ye can bear and thus be led by the Holy Spirit, becoming humble, meek, submissive, patient, full of love and all long-suffering. King Benjamin would be proud. This is so much like his list. 29, having faith on the Lord, having a hope that you shall receive eternal life, having the love of God always in your hearts. There it is, faith, hope, charity. The great trinity of Christ-like attributes. Develop all of them, that you may be lifted up at the last day and enter into his rest. He keeps talking about that. Entering into the rest of God. This is how we do it. Verse 30 then, And may the Lord grant unto you repentance. I hope it's there for you. I hope he lets you. Are we sometimes guilty of taking repentance for granted? I mean, we already read back in Mosiah 26 that as often as my people repent, I will forgive them. Well, with that guarantee, why not put it on his tab? And yet, I love the, the tension here, the contrary, the balance of, on the one hand, trusting that he really will forgive me every time I sincerely repent. But at the same time, hoping that God will grant unto me repentance. The moment I assume it's always there, even if correct in the assumption, then I am presuming upon his grace. It's a phrase I believe Paul uses. But if we have the humility to 
assume that he might not give it to us, then we'll be more correct that he always, always will. When Joseph was dedicating the Kirtland Temple, he prayed for his enemies that they may repent of their sins if repentance is to be found. Well, repentance is always to be found. But if we can approach the throne of grace with that caveat, Lord, is it still available? Then our, it's our humility that will ensure that the Lord says, of course it is. Repent and enter into my rest. 31 tantalizingly tells us that Alma says a lot more than what we've studied so far, but that we don't have. Oh, maybe that's part of the greater portion that softened hearts will someday allow us to receive. But what a chapter. What a message he's given to them and to us about how to come home.